And if you're visiting with us for the first time this morning, also just um, so you know who the guy was up here reading the scripture and introducing uh, and welcoming us this morning, this is Josh Dawes. Josh is the director of our student ministry here at Grace, and we're glad to have him in ministering. I know our students are, and um, they had a great weekend last weekend, right, at uh, the, the winter retreat, and they had, took a great group of our students up there, and uh, I know I've got, they took four of my kids uh, up there with them, so I know they had a great time and had just some great discussion about what they learned and just the great time they had. So, well, let me ask you to take your Bibles and you go, okay, where are we going this morning? Because, you know, next week we're starting what? The book of Acts. So where we're going to go this morning, turn to the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 4. John chapter 4, and we're going to be covering verses 1 through 19 uh, this morning in John chapter 4. I actually preached on these verses back October 20th in 2011. All right, so it'll be 12, 13, 14, so about three and a half years ago. And I preached these verses as I was preaching through the Gospel of John. Those of you who were here uh, three and a half years ago, you'll remember that I, I preached through the Gospel of John. It took us a little bit of time, uh, but it was a lot of fun. And so we're going to go back to these verses this morning. I thought these would be a great, uh, these verses would be a great preparation and precursor to next week when we begin the book of Acts. And I think you'll understand, if you know anything about the book of Acts, and if you don't, please come back, because we're going to start, we're going to start at the beginning of Acts, and we're going to go all the way through the book of Acts, 28 chapters of Acts. And, uh, um, but if you, if you know much about the book of Acts, I think you'll understand why I picked this passage of scripture this morning to kind of lead us in to the book of Acts. Uh, so with that said, let's, let's just go to the Lord in prayer again and just ask him to help us as we look at his word. Lord, we uh, are again at your mercy as we read your word, as we study your word, as we look to hear from you this morning. Uh, Lord, we in our own intellect, uh, with our own gifts, um, we do not have the ability to understand your word and apply it in our life. We, we, don't, understand, we, we don't have the ability without you Lord, awakening our hearts and our minds to understand and apply this. And Lord, you promised that you would send the Holy Spirit when Jesus was resurrected, and you did, and we'll see that in Acts here in a few weeks. Um, and the Holy Spirit would indwell every single believer, and he would lead us into truth. So we rely upon God the Holy Spirit this morning to lead us into truth, and not only to understand it, but to put it into practice, as we've heard even from Jesus this morning in Luke, that we want to not only be hearers, we want to be doers, we want to put into practice your word. Help us do that this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Question for you, and I guess it's more of a question and a statement together. Did you know that today, around our world, approximately 180,000 people will die? Today, in our world, 180,000 people will die. That means, over the course of this year, 65,700,000 people will die in our world. It's a lot of people, isn't it? 65 million people, almost 66 million people. Uh, those numbers, when you think about it, it's just staggering to think about that many people dying in a year's time. So why do I say that? Why do I bring up those numbers? And you think, wow, this is a great way to start a message, right? Let's talk about 66 million people dying. Um, well, I bring those up because each of those people who die will either face eternity in the very presence of God forever, or they will face eternity in a real place called hell. Every single one of those 66 million people. The scripture says, it's for man wants to die, and after that, the judgment. 66 million people, and each of them, 
will be in one place or the other. And all those who have turned and from their own sin and trusting in themselves and turn and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, they'll spend eternity with the God of the universe. And, and I still can't imagine how great that's going to be. I get a glimpse of it. We get a glimpse of it in Scripture. And, and it should just overwhelm us. Wow. But there's another portion of those people, those who haven't embraced Christ as their Savior, will be in a place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth forever where the fire is never quenched. 66 million people this year. It's a sobering thought and it's a true thought. So what does this have to do with you and me this morning? What, what does all that have to do with you and me? And you're probably thinking, a lot. Yeah, it does. The Bible clearly teaches that God alone is the one who saves. God is alone, alone is the one that can change the heart. We can't do that. He's the one that, that can fix people of sin. He's the one that gives us faith to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior and be born again. He, he's the one that works that out. The salvation is a work of God from beginning to end. And the only thing that we bring to that salvation is our sin that needs to be forgiven. So yes, God is the one who does all that. So, so since that's true, and since God is the one who is, is the, the Savior from beginning to end, we should just sit back and do nothing, right? Yeah, some of you definitely shake your hand. No, that's not right. God is the one who brings about birth, new birth. He's the one that brings about salvation in our life. He's the one who forgives sins. He's the one who sent Jesus down on the cross. He's the one who, who's done everything, and yet he has a means to his ends, doesn't he? He wants people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to bow down and worship him, to come to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's chosen to do that through people, through you and me. It's always been God's plan. That's always how he's done it. People hear the gospel from other people. And then God uses that presentation of the greatest good news that there ever has been to change people's hearts. And we see this in Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 15. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will, you, will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him who they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Now, you're thinking, well, that's the preacher's job. I never say the preacher. This is the word proclaimer. And guess who the preacher is in this passage? You and me. All of us. Every one of us are called to this. This is not, and I'll throw this out here too. Many people in things like this will go, well, you know, I don't have the gift of evangelism. So I'm, I get off the hook. Well, do you not have the gift of hospitality either, so you're not supposed to be hospitable? You don't have the gift of giving, so you don't give? I mean, we can just go down the line, and we can real quick find out. We can, we can call pretenders pretenders, right? We're all called to this. We're all the preacher. We're all the proclaimer. And God chooses to use us to do something through us to tell people about the great saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ so that they may be saved. There won't ever be anyone saved who doesn't repent and believe. There won't ever be anyone saved who doesn't hear the gospel. That's God's plan. And he's called us to join him in that plan. What, a, what an unbelievable gift that is. What a privilege that is. Did he have to do it that way? No. He's God. He could have done some other way. But he's called us together to share that great news. And he will continue to use this plan all the way until the summing up of all things. And I'm glad that we get to be a part of that, aren't you? It's a great privilege. Uh, just as we continue on, let me ask you to consider something else. What's one thing you cannot do 
in heaven that you can do here. Now, you might be thinking, you can't sin in heaven. That's exactly right. But I'm thinking about something else. Here's the other thing you cannot do in heaven that you can do here. And that's share the gospel with an unbeliever. Because there won't be any unbelievers in heaven. That's That's something we cannot do in heaven, but we have the privilege to do that here. And that's exciting to me. And, and yes, the overarching purpose of us, and we, we, we've talked about this often here at Grace, that our purpose in life is to glorify God. Whether then you eat or drink, and whatever you do, do everything to the glory of God. Everything. Well, one of the ways that we can glorify God is to share the gospel, the good news that Jesus does save us from the penalty and the, and, and the power and the presence of our sin. That's one of the ways that we can glorify God. And, and I know many of you here this morning have had some formal training in evangelism. Maybe you've been trained in the evangelism explosion. Maybe you've been trained in a thing called faith or the four spiritual laws or sharing Jesus without fear. And we could go on and on about different training methods of evangelism. And, and, and those are all good. I'm not saying that they're wrong. In fact, they're, they're very helpful to get some ideas of how you can effectively communicate the gospel to others. We want to be effective. But even in our weakness in our sharing the gospel, God can still use that. Even if we make mistakes, God can still use that. But I want us to, to not think about those things that are good things. But I want us this morning to learn from the best. The best. The best evangelist who ever lived. I want us to look at the Lord Jesus Christ and how he did evangelism. And we're going to do that again as we look here at John 4 again. To help us again just to kind of catapult us, spring us into Acts next week. So let's look. Uh, this morning at John 4. And after we work down through these verses, we're just going to go through verse 19. We're not going to get the whole uh, encounter with the, the, this, this, this woman uh, that Jesus has. We're just going to go through verse, verses 19. We don't have time to, I think I did three messages or four messages maybe on the, this, this passage all the way through um, when, we, when we went through John. But we don't have time to do that. So I want to focus in on the first 19 verses. And after we do that, I'm going to present four practical applications so you can intentionally share the gospel with others that need a Savior. All right, we'll come back to that. So if you know much about the gospel of John, you, you'll probably uh, be familiar with chapter 4. And you're thinking, oh, chapter 4, it doesn't resonate with me. But as we walk down through this passage, you're going to go, oh yeah, I've heard this one before. I'm very familiar with this, this story, um, uh, this encounter that Jesus has with this woman at this well. Now, this encounter, just to help us set it in context, is, is a stark and purposeful contrast with the encounter Jesus had with another person in chapter 3. And that person was Nicodemus. Now, I love John, and as we went through the Gospel of John, we saw all these people. He brings out individual people who are different. And I think he does this, obviously, empowered by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit. But he does this so we can relate. Oh, yeah, I relate to that guy. I relate to that girl. I relate to those people. And you see all through the Gospel of John, more than any of the other Gospels, him bring out individual people we have individual personalities and individual backgrounds so that we can try to relate. So he's just talked about a guy named Nicodemus in chapter 3. Now he's going to deal with this woman, this Samaritan woman he meets at a well in Samaria. And, 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 and he does this back-to-back to really contrast these two people. Uh, just think about this. Nicodemus was a Jew. She was a Samaritan. He was a respected leader. She was an outcast. He lived an outward righteous life. She was an adulteress. He was a man. She was a woman. If anyone could earn salvation, Nicodemus was the guy. 
It says, we, we remember back in John 3, if you don't, let me tell you, in John 3, it says he was the teacher of the law. He was the head honcho teacher who knew the Old Testament better than anybody living in that day. And he tried to live a righteous life more than anyone. I mean, he even came to Jesus at night. He was seeking more righteousness. He thought he could gain that. But if anybody could gain it, gain righteousness, it would have been Nicodemus. And if anyone did not deserve salvation, it was the woman at the well. She was a complete contrast outwardly to Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus, if he couldn't gain salvation through works, none of us could, I guarantee you that. He had a better spiritual resume than any of us. And, in reality, we can relate a lot more to, with, to the woman of the well than we can with Nicodemus, if we're all honest. At the end of this encounter with Nicodemus, he, he, he said, whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Whether the whoever is a respected teacher or a ridiculed woman, if they place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will have eternal life. Just that alone, just looking at those two in that context should be a great encouragement to all of us. Whether we relate with Nicodemus or the one at the well, in reality, we probably relate to both of them. Self-righteousness and just sometimes gross sin. We need a Savior. And whoever believes, it says, will have eternal life. Yet as many differences are between Nicodemus and the woman at the well, there's also a lot of similarities. And we're going to look at some of those here this morning as we work down to these first 19 19 verses of uh, chapter 4. Let's now look at this familiar story and and look at what God has to say to us this morning. So look at me the first three verses. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. So here we see Jesus. He's leaving Judea, and he's heading north to Galilee. He, he, he's moving even further away from the epicenter of Judaism, which was Jerusalem. He's getting further away from that. Now, why does he leave Judea and begin going toward Galilee? Why does he start heading north? Uh, at, at this time of the year, everybody wants us to head south. Right? It's warmer. But he's heading north. So one reason we see in verse 1 is the fact that some of the Pharisees are trying to pit John the Baptist and Jesus' ministry against each other. They're trying to, to bring up controversy. And of course, they were on the same team, and Jesus knew that. So Jesus wouldn't have anything to do with that. He wouldn't allow someone to bring a false division between him and John the Baptist, his most devoted follower at this time, who still had a purpose in the ministry that Jesus brought. So he moves on to continue fulfilling his mission as the Word made flesh, which is really his purpose here, heading to Galilee, which he's he's kind of revealing to us here in the Gospel of John, and and we're going to see that in in John 4 this morning. Notice, too, that John, the writer of the Gospel, so you have John the Baptist, and the writer of the Gospel we call John the Evangelist, all right? Notice that he makes a quick comment in verse 2 that that although Jesus, um, Jesus' disciples were baptizing, he says that Jesus himself was not. Now, let me just briefly touch on that, and we're going to deal with it much more in depth in Acts, and specifically, specifically Acts chapter 2 and Acts in its context, contents. But let me just say this. The fact that Jesus did not baptize reminds us that baptism is not equal to salvation. Let me say that again. Baptism is not equal to salvation because if it was, Jesus would have been dunking everybody. It's not equal to salvation. 
And we, we can never forget that. New birth does not come through water baptism, but it is il- an il- it's illustrated and demonstrated through baptism. Is baptism important? You bet it is. And if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and you haven't been baptized, you need to be baptized. And if there's a refusal to do that, maybe there's a problem with the heart. Because he calls us to be baptized, but the water doesn't change us. The water symbolizes that something happened, it's something that's happened already on the inside. It's a physical testimony of what has happened to us. So I say that we'll deal with more when we get into the book of Acts, but I want to say it because, I mean, he, he makes a point to say that Jesus didn't baptize anybody. I wonder why. We got to take notice of that. So let's look now at verse 4. Uh, and notice the route Jesus takes to Galilee. So he's going from Jerusalem to Galilee. And it says in verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. Going through Samaria was, of course, the most direct route to Galilee. However, it was not the only way you could go. There were other ways. And in fact, if you were a devoted Jewish person, you would do anything to avoid going through Samaria. Now, let me just show you this map here. All right? I can go over here on this side. So down here you have Judea and Jerusalem's right there. And Samaria's right here. Okay? So on this side over here for you guys, Jerusalem, and you go through Samaria. And if you want to go to Galilee, which is up here on the far north, all right, the shortest distance between two points, the only thing I remember from geometry is what? A straight line. I put that on every one of my proofs. I'm not sure if it ever got counted right, but surely it could have counted for something. All right, so I remember that from geometry. Shortest distance between two points is a straight line. It's also just kind of common sense. Well, some people, if you were a devoted Jew, you would cross over the Jordan here and you would go up all the way through here to get to Galilee or you go what they call by the way of the sea and you go all the way here in the Gentile country Gentile countries you hear me but not Samaritans not go to Samaria to get up here they did everything they possibly did to avoid meeting a Samaritan to be in contact with a Samaritan let me tell you how important this is to understand this passage of scripture this is key if you don't get this you miss so much of what's going on here so Jesus, instead, he goes straight from Jerusalem through Samaria to get to Galilee. Why? Because he knew his geometry? No. And we're going to see why here in just a second. That's the way that Jesus goes, and we don't want to miss that. All right? Uh, it, it, it's kind of like if, if the way that they would go around Samaria, it's kind of like if you're going to Houston about 4 o'clock p.m. You, yeah, right. You, I mean, you can go, go a couple of days. You can kind of go to the, to. to the west, maybe go through Rosenberg and Seely and come up around Conroe that way. Or you can go to the east, right, and you go through Laporte and Dayton and, and Cleveland and, and you come around and you come at Conroe that way. I guess if you call Conroe, you're really outside of Houston then, right? So do everything to keep out of that crazy traffic, to keep out of Samaria, right, at 4 p.m. in Houston. And that, that's the way that people, we, we, we try to avoid those things. Well, they try to avoid Samaritans as well. So why did Jewish people hate the Samaritans so much they would do anything? I mean, waste gas, all right, to go all the way around. Why would they do that? Well, we have to, if, if we're going to understand this, we have to go back to the time of the kings, which we just did because we just went to Habakkuk. So I'm not going to give you all the detail I did when we studied Habakkuk. But if you remember, right, that the first king was who? Saul. All right, and Saul rejected God. Didn't want to be the kind of God leader God wanted him to be. So God rejected him, and he brought up David. And then after David died, 
his son Solomon came along. Then after Solomon died, there was a split in the kingdom. Rehoboam and Jeroboam. So you had this northern kingdom, and the capital was Samaria, right? And another, the, 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 the uh, southern kingdom and capital was Jerusalem, all right? So the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom eventually both just left God, basically said, God, we hate you. We like everything else but you. Northern kingdom was taken captivity by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. That's important to know. And it's, I'm going to show you how important all that stuff I gave you a few weeks ago is. It's important to understand this, too. Because you can't understand about the hatred for the Samaritans unless you understand this. So 722 B.C., the northern kingdom is taken captive. The southern kingdom didn't learn their lesson. So eventually in 586, which was a third wave of the conquering Babylonians that came in, they destroyed the temple and, and basically just took, took the remainder. There's a few people they left behind. The remainder of the Jews to Babylon because they refused uh, to uh, um, worship the Lord and the Lord brought judgment upon them and we saw that in Habakkuk that was really what Habakkuk was about well um, so what happened in 536 BC when suddenly the, the people from the southern kingdom started coming back to Jerusalem all right, they ran into a few people called Samaritans and Samaritans here's how we got Samaritans so when the northern kingdom is in Babylon all right, when they're taking captivity in 7, 722 BC some of the the, the uh, um, Assyrians, all right, they took them to Babylon too, the Assyrians, but they intermarried with the Jews purposely to mix the race. And they became, Samaritans became half-breed, half-Jewish, half-some kind of Gentile. And then they began to come back and settle back into the land as well. So when the, the, the uh, um, people from Jerusalem came, began to come back to the southern part of the kingdom of Jerusalem, they ran into Samaritans. And they had the worst distaste for these people because they had compromised. Now, the Samaritans used to believe in a lot of different gods, but when they came back to the land, they did worship Yahweh, but they mixed into all, that with all kind of other stuff, all these pagan religions they'd been exposed to. So that they did, they, 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 the Samaritans, they left behind the idols that they used to worship, worship Yahweh, but they, they only held to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Uh, they completely ignored the rest of the Old Testament. They erected a new temple on Mount Gerizim, and they rejected the temple in, in, on the mountain in Jerusalem. These are Samaritans. So the, the southern kingdom, all right, these people, as they came back into the land of 536, did everything they could to get away from these political rebels, these spiritual half-breeds, these people who were heretics in their minds that had compromised. So to call someone a Samaritan was one of the worst insulting things you could possibly ever do, especially if you called another Jew a Samaritan, which is exactly what happens in John 8. They call Jesus a Samaritan. And he wasn't a Samaritan at all. He had the most pure bloodline of any Jew. And yet they called him Samaritan. It was just like the worst insult you could possibly give to a Jew. So here in verse 4, we see that Jesus does not do like many of the devoted Jewish people and go around Samaria to these hated people. He goes right through Samaria. Now, I took a lot of time to explain to you where the Samaritans came from and why they hated him so much. And, and, if, and I want you to kind of get the feel of this. I want you to take on this attitude of Jews towards Samaritan. Samaritan just, man, you just got to get the scowl on your face. Put your nose up. There's something inside of you. Just There's such a hate for them. I want you to feel that. And then I want you to see what Jesus does. Because when you understand that, then I think you'll understand this passage, how John, or God through John, wanted us to understand this passage. So he goes through. Now look at verse 4 again. It says, He had to pass through Samaria. 
Samaria. So what does it mean that he had to? Some translations say he needed to pass. There's an urgency. It's like he couldn't help but go through Samaria. Because he had other options, didn't he? He could have gone either way around it. But he chose to go right through. And he chose to go right through because he had divine appointment with a Samaritan who was a woman who was a persistent adulteress and outcast. That's why he went through Samaria. Because he had divine appointment. Jesus intentionally went through Samaria in order to meet this non-believing Samaritan woman. So look back at verse 5 with me. So he came to the city of Samaria called Sychar near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Then in verse 6, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now this place was a very, very special place for not only the Jews, but also for the Samaritans. Why? Because they both, Jacob and, and then Joseph, was in their lineage. And, and Jesus comes to this important site to both of those and sits down by Jacob's well, which is actually still in existence today. All right? And he comes and he's in the state of being exhausted and he's thirsty physically he's exhausted and he's thirsty notice too that it was the sixth hour I mean it's the heat of the day he's been on this journey going even though it was the straightest the shortest distance between two points it was still a long journey it wasn't an easy journey with his disciples the sixth hour the heat of the day he's walking in this and he comes to the well at that time let's read on in verse 7 there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Verse 8. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Not only did Jesus go to Samaria, but now he encountered a Samaritan. And not only a Samaritan, but a what? A woman of Samaria. It then says he spoke to her. The fact that he was in close proximity with a Samaritan was bad enough. That he was in close proximity of a woman who was a Samaritan was even worse. And the fact that he spoke to her, are you kidding me? This couldn't be any worse for a Jewish man. I mean, what are they going to say to him? What are they going to think about Jesus? He's doing something he should have never done. Let me say this. Jesus intentionally engages in a conversation with this woman. Intentionally. Intentionally engages with her. It didn't just happen. Notice what he says to her. Give me a drink. He's actually asking her to give her a drink from her bucket, from her cup. And, and verse 11, because he, 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 she's saying, where are you going to get something to get something to drink from? He didn't have his cup. He didn't have a bucket to get any water. And he's saying, to a Samaritan, to a woman who he's speaking to, may I drink after you from your cup? Could it get worse? Uh-uh. And this is awful. Who's, who does Jesus think he is? He must not think he's a devoted Jewish man. At least what their understanding of that was. Notice now in verse 9, um, the woman's response to Jesus. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? I mean, she's taken aback at all this. For Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. So Samaritan woman is so shocked that Jesus, a Jewish man, would talk to her and ask her to, to, to give him a drink from her bucket. And, and, and that, that phrase there that's kind of in some of your Bibles, maybe be in parentheses, it's kind of set apart um, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritan. Literally, it says this, Jews don't use together with Samaritans. 
Jews don't use together with Samaritans anything. Anything. Now look at verse 10, how Jesus responds to her. Jesus answered her and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Now it's interesting to note that there's been a reversal of roles here. At first, Jesus is the one who expressed thirst by asking her for water. We saw that, I'm thirsty, give me something to drink. But now he speaks to her as if she's the one who is thirsty and he's the one who has the water to give. He's turned this whole thing on his head. Now notice her response in verse 11, his response, or her response to Jesus. There's this puzzling statement, what, what are you talking about? Look at verse 11. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Jesus' words were obviously pointing to something spiritual, not physical. And this is another theme throughout the Gospel of John. He uses things that are physical to point to something spiritual, and the people never get it. They keep thinking physical. And, and Nicodemus did the same thing. He kept thinking physical. Uh, in, in fact, in the Old Testament, living water is often equated and used to symbol as a symbol to signify spiritual cleansing and new life that will have its fulfillment in the new covenant. Here's one passage that you see that in Jeremiah 17, uh, 13. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. So the Lord and the new birth were equated, and I could show you tons of passages in the Old Testament, equated to the new birth the promise of the new covenant where God would come and live inside people and get, take away the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh to give them a new heart. He's equated to this living water. Jesus not only intentionally engaged this woman in conversation, he quickly turns the conversation spiritually. And although Jesus was speaking of spiritual things and the fact that he could give her new life, she, like many of us, didn't get it. Like Nicodemus didn't get it when he talked about you must be born again okay can i go into my mother's womb again that doesn't make sense and god through paul speaks of the reason that they didn't get it and the reason that without christ we don't get it Look what he says in first corinthians two fourteen. but a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of god for they are foolish to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised the natural man means someone without christ someone who doesn't have a new heart just having the Holy Spirit living inside of him, can, listen, cannot understand. You can train them all you want. You can, they can memorize the Bible. And Nicodemus basically had done that. And they still won't understand. Are you kidding me? And they can have their PhD and keep piling it higher and deeper with their PhD and just get all the degrees they want. They can go to seminary and every seminary in the country and still not understand and still not get it when you say you must be born again or I am the one who has the living water. There's a reason, because they're dead spiritually. They need God to do a work in their heart so they can understand. And that's the reason she couldn't understand. That's the reason we can't understand without Christ. Now look at verse 12 with me. You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? The language of her statement expects a negative answer. Of course you're not greater than Jacob. I mean, he discovered the well... And even he needed a bucket to drink. Even he needed a cup. I mean, that's Jacob. 
Notice Jesus' response in verse 13. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Verse 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Jesus basically says, Yes, I am greater than Jacob. And the water that comes from this well, I'm greater than that water too. And his well and his water will leave you thirsty again. It will not meet your ultimate need. But the water or the life that I give will never leave you thirsty. It will meet your ultimate need. And that's new life. Surely she gets it now. I mean, surely. I mean, Jesus, the Son of God, God the Son, has just explained to her what he means. And surely she's going to get it, right? Yeah, you expect the answer. No, she doesn't get it. Uh, look at verse 15. The woman said, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty. And you'll have to come all the way here to draw. I mean, that would be a great deal. If you could give me this water, I don't have to walk out here in the heat of the day anymore and get water. She still doesn't get it. What will Jesus do then to help her understand that her greatest need is not H2O, but her greatest need is Jesus as her Savior? What's he going to do? Well, let's look. Remember, he's the master evangelist. How does he get him to see her need for him? How do we get others to see their need for Jesus? Look at the beginning of verse 16, and we'll go down through verse 18. He said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have said correctly, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. So what's Jesus doing here? What is he doing? First of all, he's getting into her kitchen. And that's not a good thing. But he is intentionally, listen to this word again, he's intentionally exposing her sin and therefore showing her need for a Savior. Which he shows himself to be in verse 26, that he is a Savior. He makes that clear in verse 26. We won't get there today, but he does. He's intentionally exposing her sin so she can see she has sin and she needs a Savior from her sin. Uh, D.A. Carson uh, stresses how bad this woman's sin would have been seen and ex explains rabbinic opinion disapproved more than, than three marriages even though they were legally permissible no body of religious opinion approved common law marriages Now, how, and they would go okay three that's the limit how many had she had five and now she's living with another guy common law marriage right six she had doubled Basically, what they considered the worst she could possibly be. I mean, they couldn't have painted a worse picture here of this woman. Jesus purposely chose to reach out to this sinful woman to show just how far his grace reaches. You think you, you've got, you, you, you could never be saved? That he could never forgive you of your sin? He purposely goes to this woman whose sin, in the world's eyes, is the greatest it could possibly be. And he does that to show us we all have hope. That his grace, as great as your sin is, his grace is greater. Greater than your sin. Listen, Jesus is not intimidated by your sin. He died for it. He can take care of all sin. Man, I love that about him, don't you? He loved her enough to expose her sin and reveal her heart so that she could see that she had a real need and it was way beyond physical water. Uh, look, look with me at John Two, and you can flip back there if you want to look at the end of John 2 with me. And, and notice how, let me say this. Remember that the numbers in your Bible were not there in the original manuscripts. 
There was no numbers. They just help us, when I say turn to John 6, or John 4, or Acts 7, or whatever it is, you can get there. And, and it's helpful. There's nothing wrong with having those numbers there because they help us come to the right place. We'd be here all day. You know over there when it talks about Hezekiah, and you're like, who's Hezekiah? All right? We'll never get there, right? So we've got to give you a, an address, and that's okay. But sometimes they can hinder the flow of the passage. And this is one of those times. So look at John 2.25. It says, And because he did not need anyone to testify him concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. And yet ends the chapter. But now let, listen to this again. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning himself, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees. See what he's doing? Named Nicodemus. A rule. He's giving an example that he knew what was in the heart of men. Now you could use verse 25 and lead right into this story as well. It could say, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a woman of Samaria. Or you could say, he knew, what was in, he knew himself what was in, in the heart of women. Now, there was a woman of the Samaritans. And he is just doing this. Jesus knew this woman's heart. And he's showing that he knows her heart. He knew everything about her. He knows what's in our hearts. He knows what's in the hearts of all people. He knows everything about us. And the only way to get her to see he was offering her new life and cleansing was to expose her sinful heart to let her see what he saw now look at her, her classic response in verse 19 the woman said to him i love this look at verse 19 sir i perceive that you're a prophet i wonder what would have given her that idea i mean he, she, he just read her mail and she says i perceive that you're a prophet um, you, you, it's okay to laugh sometimes when you see things like this. It just, I mean, it just strikes you. Yeah, you're right. Um, so the fact is, though, that he was a more than a prophet. He was the prophet that Moses promised. He was the Messiah who came to save his people from the penalty and the power and the presence of sin through his death, burial, and resurrection. That's who he was. Oh, yes, he was a prophet, but he was way more than that. And that's great news. It's obvious to see from this passage of Scripture that Jesus is the master evangelist. evangelist. Now, we, you may, can we just keep going? This is so good, and I know it's so good. But if you want to listen to the rest of this, you can go on our website and catch the rest of John that I preached over three years ago um, and, and catch the rest of this. And, and, and I'll just say this, my, my own opinion after seeing this in context, I don't think later she's trying to say it, change the subject and the questions she's asking. People say, oh, she's trying to change the subject. I think she was generally at this point because her sin was exposed. She was generally asking, I really want to know where the right place is to worship. And he says, it's not a place, it's a person. I really want to know what it takes so I can be made right with God. I really want to know. I'm not he, she wasn't trying to change the subject. I don't, I don't think that's what it's teaching at all. So as you read down through the rest of it, just remember that. And she was earnest now at this point because he's exposed her. And she wasn't trying to divert attention from her sin. So what can we learn here from Jesus' example in sharing the good news with those who are without his forgiveness? A new life. So let me give these four practical exhortations that will help us intentionally share the gospel for those who don't for those who don't need him. First, intentionally meet non Christians. Intentionally. I mean if you don't remember any word, this intentionally. It's not going to happen by accident. You're not going to meet many non Christians by accident. But Jesus, or just like Jesus intentionally met this woman the Samaria woman, this non-believer, we have to be intentional about meeting them. What tends to happen, you become a Christian. I don't care how vile of a background you may have come out of, but when we become a Christian, 
What happens? Who do we start hanging around mostly with? Christians. And that's okay. There's a part of that. We need to have that. The scripture exhorts us to meet together, to exhort one another, to love one another, to serve one another. You can't do one another's unless you're with people who are the body of Christ, unless you're with Christians. That is good. It's important. But often what happens, that's the only people we ever spend time with. And we're always being built up. We're always being poured into, and we become like the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea has no outlet. That's one, why the, one of the reasons why the salt content is so high. There's no outlet. So there's not fresh water running through it. We need to let what's coming in come out. And we intentionally meet non-believers so we can... Sh- who are going to share the gospel with? Now, Brandon, uh, let me share the gospel with you one more time. Yes, you got it many years ago, but I'm just going to remind you. You know, that's good too because we always need the gospel. But Brandon's not going to be reconverted He's not going to get a new, new heart. He's got the new heart, and it's not going to be any better than that. And that's not saying you're not getting any better, Brandon, but all right. So, but we need to find somebody who doesn't know. So we have to intentionally find non-believers. That's hard to do. If all we are always around believers. I remember back in 1994, when I was a much younger man than I am now, um, my, my friend and, and, and pastor, Tommy Nelson, at Denton Bible Church, was teaching a men's Bible study 6 a.m. in the morning. I was sitting there, and he was teaching through the Gospel of John, 1994. And he was teaching through this, and he gets, the, he gets to the end of this, and he just asks this question to all the men sitting in the room. Where is your well? Where is your well? He's basically saying, you've got to have a well. You've got to have a place where you can meet non-believers so they can hear about the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. You, you, you got to do that. Now you got to be wise. You, you, you don't you, you don't go walking into bars when people are drunk trying to share the gospel with them. Yeah, we got him to say the prayer, but he was half drunk when he said it, right? And I'm not sure what prayer we're trying to get him to say anyway. It's a whole other thing for another day. Um, there's no sinner's prayer anywhere in Scripture, but I'll just keep going. <clears throat> we do need to repent and believe. I will tell you that. But where's your well? Where are you intentionally meeting non-believers? Where are you intentionally meeting non-believers for that purpose, to share the gospel? Work, school, your neighbors, hobbies, sports, restaurants, on and on. There's lots of places that we can meet non-believers. We are called to have a well. You need to be able to answer the question, where's your well? You need to be able to answer that. As one who serves in the role of a pastor and constantly is surrounded mostly by Christians. It's just because of the nature of what God's called me, that's who I'm mostly around. I have to ask myself this question periodically to make sure I'm getting in places where I'm meeting non-believers. I have to do that. Now, our kids, we've got six of them, as many of you all know. They're involved involved in a lot of stuff. And we're intentionally involved in a lot of stuff, not just so they can play this sport or do this activity, but... That's a great way for us to meet non-believers. And i got to keep reminding myself, that's the reason why we're doing this. That's not for our kid gets this great experience. It's so we can meet non-believers. So let's using them. No, it's not. I'm going to get to that just in a second. It's not using them. But I need, I need to have a well, too. And you need to have a well. Where is your well? If you don't have a well, get a well. And go to the well and meet non-believers. Second practical exhortation here to help us intentionally share the gospel. Intentionally, here's a word again, engage in spiritual conversation. Or, or no, no, first, sorry, I'm going to add that in a second. 
first engage in conversation, just strike up a conversation. He intentionally engages in conversation. First, it seems just shallow, right? He says, give me a drink. He's really thirsty. This is real need. It's a real physical need. So he engages her in conversation. And when we intentionally meet non-Christians, we need to engage them in conversation. We need to get to know them. We need to be generally concerned about what they do, who they, who they are in the sense of what kind of family they have, where they work. We really need to get to know them a little bit. And we must, though, get past family, weather, and sports, and other things. We've we got to eventually get past that. We can't just stop there. So the third thing, then, is to intentionally engage people, in, non-believers, in spiritual conversation. Not just conversation, but spiritual conversation. So he quickly turned this conversation from temporal matters to in eternal matters with the woman at the well. And if we love our non-Christian friends, we will too. Because I don't care how well my Kentucky Wildcats are doing right now. That will not save anyone from the penalty of their sin. Or how good your sports team is. Or what the weather is in the Northeast right now. We've got to get past that. We've got to get to the heart of the matter. You see, every relationship is to be a gospel-centered relationship. Every relationship we have is to be gospel-centered. How are we bringing the gospel into every relationship we have? We've got to answer that question. How can you do this? Well, there's lots of ways you can do this. And people do it differently. One of the things, what ways we like to do this, I've shared this before, when we go out to eat together or when I go out to eat when I'm, and some of you guys have been to, to lunch with me, and often, not all the time, but very often, I'll ask the server, depending on how quickly they get there, and back I'll say, you know, what's your name? And how long have you been working here? And then, then I'll say, hey, we're getting ready to pray for our meal. Is there anything we could pray for? And you would not believe some of the responses I've gotten. I know some of you all started doing that, and I've gotten to hear that. It's exciting to hear you do that. And it's amazing. Some people, oh, yeah, no, nah, that's okay. Or, you know, my so-and-so sick. Or when we were in Colorado for um, anniversary, was it our 10th anniversary? 15th anniversary, yeah, 15th anniversary. Coming up on our 20th anniversary. Don't let me forget that, okay? Um, August 12th. Uh, but 15th anniversary, we were in Colorado, and this that we ate it, down in, in this little town or cute mountain town and um, we go to this restaurant and this young girl comes up and she we're talking to her and stuff like that and I asked her that question and she said this yes please pray that I'll find the meaning to life wow I said I'll do that so we pray we prayed for her I forget what her name was we prayed for her we prayed Lord open her heart so she would know the meaning of life to know you who Jesus so she comes back, and, I, and, I, and John, I was laughing because her, I said this. I said, yeah, I've got an answer for you. She's like, oh, my, he heard from God. <laughs> you know, he prayed, and God told him what the answer was, the meaning of life. And we got a chance to share the gospel with her. And I'm so thankful there wasn't a lot of people in there because she asked questions, and we had this great conversation with this young lady, and my prayers that God used that seed, and she came to faith in Jesus Christ. But you'll never know. That's just simple. How hard is that to do? And you'd be surprised. the way. I mean, some, we've had people just break down and weep we think people just bow down right with us yeah let's don't just pray for me i want to pray with you it's amazing this is a simple way that we can engage in spiritual conversations with 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 you can do that with your neighbors your co-workers your family just get engaged in spiritual conversations fourthly the last one here at least for this morning a practical exhortation to intentionally share the gospel is intentionally expose sin and a need for a savior Ex- intentionally expose sin and need for a savior now, you don't do it like, Ah, oh, you sinner! I can't believe what you're doing. 
that's not the way you do it. Jesus didn't do it that way. He asked some questions. And then she began to be honest with him. Well, yeah, I'm, yeah, God, and yeah, you're right. And he said, of course, he, we don't know people's hearts like Jesus did, but we could ask questions and engage and, and help people see their sin and need for a Savior. Um, and, and the best way to do that is asking questions. Ask questions like, are you 100% sure, for sure if you died today, you'd go to heaven? That's a great question. And, and then, you, then you, when they say yes or no, you say why? Some people say, oh, yeah, I will. I'm, I'm better than this bad person over here. I've never killed anybody, right? I've never committed adultery, so I'm going to heaven. That, that may be their answer. And, of course, that's not true why they're going to heaven, if they're going to go to heaven or not, right? Or maybe they say, you know what? There's no way I'm going to heaven. Why would you say that? It's not a threatening question. Then all of a sudden, they begin to tell you why. And then you, they get you what you do, do is they begin to see their sin and talk about their sin. You get to give them the greatest answer and the remedy for their sin problem. It's called Jesus. You get to tell them that Jesus came to die for the penalty of your sin that you're talking about. And the penalty of my sin that I have in my life. Jesus came to die for that. So that you could have life and be given a new heart and be made right with God and be promised eternal life with Him forever. I mean, that's the greatest news ever. And we have the privilege to tell that to people. But we have to, we have to get to the point where they see their sin. Now once they see their sin, don't just keep going. I mean, ease up. Because they've already seen it. That's, that's the point you want to get them to. And once you do, then you bring in the good news. Once they see the bad news. And share with them Jesus. Well, I'd be remiss then to tell you all that. Knowing that there's people in this room right now. They're in the same boat that I once was. And that the woman at the well was this point now her life has changed and you see that through the rest of the rest of the chapter but i'd be remiss because i know i don't i'm not saying okay i know that this person i just know there's people in the room and there are always is people in the room in a few different categories uh, that would lump all into the same categories that i was once in and the woman that well was once in they're lost without christ you don't know jesus your sins are not forgiven so you stand in a place of condemnation some people in this room think they're saved because they think they're nicodemus they think because they come to church and they memorize some scripture and maybe they go to a life group or maybe they obey their parents most of the time or those kind of things that those are the things that are going to merit them a way into heaven and i'm telling if you are in that category you think you will earn your way into heaven by even praying a prayer when you were young that is not how you get that's not how you get made right with god that's not how you're forgiven that's not how you're given a new heart that's not how you're born again and you're not promised heaven if those are the things you're trusting in and I would call you just like Jesus to see that as sin and as an affront to God because see what Jesus died for your sin if you're trying to earn it that's an insult to a holy God who sent his son to die and pay the penalty that you cannot pay yourself and I would call you 